I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. And our focus today will be on verses 1 to 10. John 10, verses 1 to 10. We're continuing to look at the images given to us regarding the church in the New Testament. And so far we have seen that the church is the spirit-born family of God. We are brothers and sisters, not by biology, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, redeeming us and enabling us to be born again, giving us a new nature. We've seen that the church is the spirit-filled building of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, filled with the person of the Holy Spirit and empowered. And we've seen that the church is the spirit-empowered body of Christ, the Spirit-empowered body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ in the earth, empowered by Him. And we've seen that the church is the Spirit-sanctified bride of Christ, made holy, made pure, prepared as a bride for the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. For that great day when he will return to finish what he began. But we have one more image to cover. And it's the image from which I get my title as pastor. Pastor. We often forget this. The church is the spirit-led flock of Christ. Given to Christ by God the Father. The spirit-led flock and I am an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my job is not to tell you what I think, it's to tell you what he says. My job is not to form a bond with you and with me. I'm to point you to the chief shepherd so that you can form a bond with him. So that he will guide you and direct you so that you will know his goodness and his love. And there's probably nowhere else in the New Testament where we could go where this is spelled out more clearly than in John chapter 10, where we see that the people of God, the church, is his flock. So I invite you to read with me, beginning at verse 1. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, 
I am the gate for the sheep. All who come all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is using imagery that's probably foreign to most of us. I don't know when the last time was that you even laid eyes on a sheep. Uh, For me, it wasn't that long ago, actually. I saw one at the state fair. But it's still pretty foreign. I wouldn't know what to do with it if someone said, here, you've won a sheep, take it home, right? Most of us have no idea what to do with a sheep or what this imagery is about. So we need to close that, that gap to some extent. What Jesus is describing is a sheepfold, usually with a rock wall. It could be circular, it could be squared, it could be detached and independent, or it could be attached to a house or another building. And in the sheepfold, multiple shepherds generally would have their flocks. And so when the shepherd would come to claim his sheep, as opposed to the sheep belonging to another shepherd, he calls them out, and they know his voice. They recognize his voice. They won't follow another shepherd's voice. And Jesus is saying, this is what it's like when I come to call forth my sheep, the people that belong to me. They know my voice. And he says, I'm the gate for the sheep. And generally with these enclosures, sometimes they wouldn't even have an actual gate because the shepherd or the gatekeeper would sleep in the doorway or stay in the doorway to keep anyone from trying to go through. So a person is the gate to some extent. And Jesus is saying, that is my role. I stay at that entrance. And there's no coming in and there's no going out apart from me. I am the gate. And generally, the shepherds would bring their sheep in to the sheepfold at night to keep them safe from wolves and predators and thieves. And then in the morning, they come to retrieve their sheep. They call them forth, and they go out and enjoy pasture. And this is very much still a living art. When we think about sheep herding, if we know anything about sheep herding, we think of dogs moving sheep. But in the Middle East, even to this day, if you observe the Bedouins, they still call their sheep using their voice. They will even sing to their sheep, and the sheep will follow them. And so we need to see the intimacy that exists between the shepherd and his sheep. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of relationship I have with my people. And he says that thieves come only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly, in abundance. I came that they might have life. Well, it's not only the case that the imagery is foreign to us, it's also that the teaching is foreign to us because so often people today, people outside the church, even people in the church, 
think of Christianity, especially in, a, in an organized form, like we're participating in right now, as something small and confining and narrow and stifling. And they think, why would I want anything to do with that? Why would I want to give up my Sunday? My Sunday, I mean, how many days do I get off? Why would I want to give up Sunday? I'm better off without it. And by and large, this modern age is marked by the pursuit of, of trying to be liberated, freed from the shackles of organized Christianity, freed from the morality of biblical Christianity and any other organized form of religion. This is something we need to be liberated from. It's oppressive. It stifles human creativity. It stifles human ambition. We've got to be freed from this. Sound familiar? Even people who come faithfully to church can think sometimes that, well, I'll do it for Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus needs me to do this. I'll do it for Jesus. I love Jesus. And I'll do it out of habit or out of duty or out of obligation. Ever felt that way? Well, here Sunday again, I got to preach, right? It's my duty. It's my job. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest possible extent. That doesn't sound very narrow or confining or stifling to me. So why the disconnect? Why the problem? Why the misunderstanding? Well, to be perfectly fair, organized Christianity has been an oppressive force in this world. People have used Christianity to hurt other people, to even kill other people. They have used Christianity to serve political ends, and they still do. It's not a new problem. And I'm not here to defend any of that. I grant that entirely. I grant that point. But I am here today to announce the message of Jesus himself. Namely, I came that they might have life and have it in abundance. That's the gospel. That's the message. And while human sinfulness and ingenuity and resourcefulness will try to twist that and distort that and use that, We've got to maintain the clarity of what Jesus himself says. I came that they might have life. So I pray that on the other side of this, you have a more freed, liberated, and joyful view of who Jesus is and why he came. And I pray that you might have this life and have it to the fullest possible extent. But to get there, we need to remember this truth. Jesus didn't come to get anything from us. 
Jesus didn't come to get anything from you or from me. He doesn't need it. (laughs) He has everything. He's the eternal Son of God. No, no. He came to give us everything we need to live life to the full, to the fullest possible extent. He came not to get from you, but to give. And the message of the church is always to be that we're giving. We don't need something from you because our Lord doesn't need something from you. We want to give. He came to give. Do you fully grasp this truth? Are you gripped by this truth? Does it make any difference in your life? He came not to be served, but to serve. That's our Savior. That's the gate. That is the good shepherd that we read about here. But to see what he comes to give, we need to understand something that is often overlooked. And that is this. Life is deadly, serious business. Life is deadly, serious business. Life in this world is deadly serious. However much we want to ignore that, Pretend that that's not true. It is deadly serious. But so often when we think about enjoying life, someone says, you ought to live a little. What do they mean? They mean you need to indulge yourself. Enjoy life. Buy something. Eat something. Drink something. Go somewhere. Loosen up. Don't be so serious. You're not really enjoying life. And yet, what does Jesus say? Throughout this passage, while there's something sentimental and and beautiful and gentle about the shepherd and the sheep, notice how Jesus is repeatedly warning, there are strangers, stranger danger, watch out. They want to allure you out, they want to seduce you, they want to make you believe that you belong to them when you do not. There are thieves, there are robbers, there are people who are trying to climb over the wall, there are people who want to rob you, to steal you, to destroy you. And this is the nature of life in this world. And those who come to know this abundance of life that Jesus describes recognize that this is the true nature of life in this world. That it's deadly serious, that it's dangerous, that there are real threats, and we cannot ignore them. People this time of year put all kinds of scary things out in their yards. Skeletons, zombies, blood, spiders, cobwebs, ghosts. People revel in scariness. Some people just enjoy trying to scare other people. And people watch movies this time of year for the scare factor. 
They enjoy this. There's something in human nature that enjoys this. But the irony is this. The scariest thing in the world has nothing to do with Halloween decorations or horror movies. The scariest thing in the world is lurking inside of me and lurking inside of you. Jeremiah 17 says, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right now in your life, this war is being waged that we read about in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a war raging within you. And it's a war that is driven by the manipulation of our enemy, Satan, the deceiver, the devil. And while so many of us dismiss that, they say, oh, I, don't, I can't believe in some figure with horns and a pitchfork. Come on. While that caricature of our enemy is to be dismissed out of hand. We need to acknowledge that the real enemy would love nothing more than for you to think of him that way because as long as you think of him as a cartoon, you will not take him seriously. You will not take him seriously. The real enemy wants to have you. And he will climb over the wall he will use any temptation. He will lie. And we need to wake up and realize just how deadly serious life is. We want to keep it on the sunny side, don't we? We want to pretend like these other heavy, dark things just don't exist. Oh, we'll bring it out at Halloween, of course, because that's kind of fun. But the real heaviness, the real darkness, the real danger is inside of you and inside of me right now in this room. Telling you it's not that bad. You've got plenty of more time to live. You can, you can be liberated from God. You don't need God. You don't need church. You don't need the confining influence of his commandments. But that voice is as old as the human race. That old serpent in the garden saying to Eve, did God really say that? You're not going to die. Eat. Enjoy. Live a little. how we listen to the stranger 
we fall prey to his designs. You have and I have. We all do. This is our condition. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. All of us are born into this world with a nature inherited from Adam and Eve, and we are incapable of upholding God's law. And as soon as we are able, we will transgress just like our ancestors have. This is your story and my story, and it is deadly serious business. We are dead people walking around. You don't have to make up zombies. You don't have to watch a zombie movie. We are dead people walking around apart from Christ. Do you realize that? Dead. Not on our way toward being dead. Dead in our sins and transgressions. That's you and that's me. This is exactly what the enemy tries to do. Jesus says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers. All who have come before me who have claimed to be the answer, the solution. They're thieves and robbers. They can't deliver. They can't satisfy. They can't give real life. And this is the nature of our enemy. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Remember, the enemy comes to take life. To take life. The enemy comes to take life. To try to allure you. Come with me. Come with me. Hey, kid, I've got something good for you. And it looks so good at the moment, doesn't it? There are many tonight who will indulge. Don't we know it? They're going to eat all they want. They're going to drink all they want. They're going to indulge their lust. I don't have a crystal ball. I just know that's what's going to happen. And you know it too, right? Oh, and it's going to be fun while they're in the moment. The party mentality, the crowd mentality is going to sweep over them. And they're going to do things that they would never normally do. But because everybody else is doing it, because they want to fit in, they do it. It's fun. They're living life. There's a frivolity about it. Talk to them tomorrow. What will they say? What was I thinking? How could I do that? How could I be so foolish? And this is what the enemy wants. To steal, to take, to take your joy, to replace true joy with what cannot give you joy, to take your peace, to take your innocence, and leave you with shame and guilt and regret and remorse. That's what the enemy does. And we give in. We don't have to look any further than the parable Jesus tells of a son in Luke chapter 15. The son has a wealthy father. And he decides, you know, I don't really want to wait for him to die. I'd kind of like to have my inheritance now. So he says, Dad, come on. Let's hand over my portion now. So what does he do? He goes out. He's free. 
He's free to live, to enjoy life, to eat, to drink, to be merry. Oh, it's so much fun. And then where does he end up? He ends up in the misery of sin. And this is where sin always leads to misery. And he finds himself feeding pigs. And it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's how desperate he is. And while I hope you've not known that level of desperation, your heart is just as sick as his. Desperately sick. The same disease that afflicts his heart afflicts mine and afflicts yours. But by the grace of God and the intervention of the Holy Spirit, he can bring life out of dead bones, out of sinners who are dead in their sins and transgressions. He can allow us to think something like this. When he came to his senses, literally when he came to himself, he woke up, he realized, what am I doing? Where am I? How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is the starting point for true salvation. When you look at your life and you say, what have I done? I'm calling this life? No, this isn't life. Only what the shepherd offers is life. The shepherd comes to give life. The shepherd comes to give life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In abundance. In excess. We're good at being excessive, aren't we? Just not in the right things. But there is a generosity, an abundance, a fullness of life that is available to you in Jesus, the one who came for this very purpose to free you, to say, look, why are you sitting in the pig pen? Why are you settling for that? That's not life. That's not going to satisfy your heart. Listen for my voice. Follow me, and I will lead you beside still waters. I will lead you to pastures where you can have your full, you can enjoy, and really enjoy and not regret it, and not have remorse the next day. Wholesome, holy living. This is not narrow. This is not confining or restraining. This is life-giving. And so many miss it, and people don't know why the world is the way it is. Well, we know why it's the way it is, don't we? It's because they've tried to go over the wall. They haven't gone through the gate. There's only one gate, and that gate is Jesus. But His arms are wide open to receive sinners of every tribe, nation, and tongue 
Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you haven't done, you can come to him. And I have his word that he will not drive you away. If you come to him and you say, I have made a mess of my life, my heart is sick, I am desperate, I cannot save myself, it doesn't matter how much I go to church, it doesn't matter how many prayers I say, it doesn't matter how much of the Bible I've memorized, you and you alone can save me, Jesus. That's true salvation. That's life. Life in abundance. Do you know that life? Is your heart moved by that? This will satisfy your heart, your emotions, your feeling. God made you to be an emotional creature. And there is romance in coming to Christ, to living as his bride, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's enough here to satisfy your mind. You can spend the rest of your life thinking and plumbing the depths of God's truth. And you'll barely scratch the surface. This will satisfy your mind. There's enough here to satisfy your will. You want meaning and and purpose? You want something to do that's not just in vain? Come to Christ. He's got plenty of work for you to do. Listen for his voice. He'll lead you out. He'll show you this is worth doing. This is worth saying. This place is worth going to. These are people worth being around. Nothing else can satisfy. No one else can satisfy. No one else can give you this kind of life. Are you enjoying this kind of life? Well, if you don't know anything about this kind of life, then cry out to him, call out to him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can save you. He can save you. And you'll know that you're crying out, you hear his voice, because the Holy Spirit has already been working in you. But to the one who says, oh, I've done that, I've been baptized, I've been born again, I know all that, yep, I know Jesus saves, yep, yep, I've been sitting in this pew ever since, yep. To you, I would say, is there an abundance, a fullness of life about you or not? Because when we are first born again, we don't come as mature, full-blown Christians. We're saved, yes, we've been Washed by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us, yes. But we're mere infants in Christ. We're babes. We have growth that needs to happen. And it can happen by the power of the Holy Spirit as we yield to him and surrender to him. And when that happens, here are some signs to look for. You're going to have more perseverance in the face of trials. Because while we can trust the good shepherd to keep us safe, he doesn't promise that there won't be storms, that there won't be dangerous weather, that there won't be trials and adversity. There will be. The question is, how are you bearing up under it? When the trials come and the storms come, do you say, God, why me? Why now? Or do you say, I'm going to cling to him because I believe his right hand upholds me. And this anchor will hold. And I won't give way. I won't give up on him. I will remain true to him. Because this life, life in this world, 
is not the end game. Life in the world to come is. Is that perseverance in you in trials or do you fall to pieces when anything doesn't go the way that you hoped it would go? There's going to be a renewed sensitivity when this abundance of life comes. A sensitivity to know what the Spirit is doing, to feel the Spirit, to want to answer to the Spirit's summons, to see this person in need, to see this person who needs to hear the good news so that you're not wholly focused on yourself and what your immediate needs are. Is that sensitivity in you? Or is it still all about number one? There's going to be a power, a power that you cannot explain in any other way. Take the Apostle Peter. The same Peter who is denying Jesus, saying, I don't even know that man. As Jesus is on trial and going to the cross. He says, I don't even know him. And then look at him at the beginning of the book of Acts. Brothers, repent. Believe in Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. He's speaking with boldness. He's hauled in before the authorities while he wilted before a young child before. Now he's standing before the elite, the power brokers of his day, and he's speaking the name of Jesus without fear and without shame. Same man. How is this possible? Because of this fullness and abundance of life. Is that in you? Is there any evidence of it? I pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon you and upon me, upon this church, so that this abundance, this fullness of life would be more evident in me and in you. So that we're not just existing. We're not just going from day to day. We're not just focusing on what is immediately before us, but we have an eternal vision of what is happening in this world and what truly matters and what truly lasts. May he do that. But remember, there's only one way in. There's only one who's the gate. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you hear his voice? Do you hear him calling your name? I pray that you would as we go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you from the depths of our hearts that you chose to intervene with sinners like us. That you chose to redeem a people for yourself. And that you sent your one and only Son to die on the cross for us. To purchase by his blood your redeemed people. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone hearing this message who does not yet belong, who does not know the price that has been paid, the cost of this sacrifice, Lord, that this would be the day and that they would receive the gift you offer. And I pray that if there is anyone who knows they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, but who is living a life of fear, who who dreads death, who fears bad news in the doctor's office, who fears the trials and tribulations of this life, Lord, pour out your Spirit upon them, enliven them, awaken them, empower them, 
all by your grace and for your glory, so that by the abundance and the fullness of our living, we might magnify your greatness, your goodness, and your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.